2: Hello and welcome to the Longform podcast. It's another Wednesday, another new show, and I'm your co-host Evan Ratliff. With me are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. They are the proprietors of Longform.org. I am a reporter and author of a book called The Mastermind. Max and Aaron, how are you guys?
0: I'm good. I'm good. I'm also I'm also well, and and it uh, it makes me so happy when you follow through on our plan to ID ourselves at the top of the show. You make me happy too.
2: I'm trying to stick to it. Trying to stick to it. We all know that you're going to be the one of the three of us that sticks to things, and uh, and I appreciate it. Who is on the show this week? Uh, this week I talked to Brooke Jarvis. She is a freelancer. She's based in Seattle. She's written wonderful long features for The New York Times Magazine, where she's a regular contributor to The New Yorker, to California Sunday, to The Atavist Magazine, where I used to work. Uh, she covers a really wide range of topics, often including science, she writes about immigration, she writes about issues facing Native Americans. Um, But the through line for me is that she always finds these really close up narrative roots through those issues. And that's why a lot of her stories have ended up on longform.org, I feel like. And uh, we talked about how she does that, among other things, and it was a great conversation.
0: I Like how you did the callback the promo and then the callback to the promo item I like
2: to I like to plug you guys on on the show that's uh, named after your organization
0: um I look forward to this interview I really uh, I really enjoyed her work in the uh, the late great uh, California Sunday Yeah, I feel like Brooke's just um one of those people you see her byline and you're like, this will be good this just this just will be good.
2: Indeed, it was one where I, I didn't really have to prep that much because rather than going <laughs> back and reading a bunch of stuff I hadn't read, I had actually read uh, many, many Brookjawor stories already.
0: I would be in uh, remiss in a uh, promo-filled, uh, self-promo-filled introduction if I didn't send a shout-out to the good people at Mailchimp. They make this show possible. They have for many years, and we really appreciate it. allows us to just do the same thing and come hang out with each other for two to three minutes every week, get to see each other's faces, <laughs> and hear an interview. And here is that interview, Evan Ratliff with Brooke Jarvis.
2: Brooke Jarvis. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
2: It's good to see you out there in Seattle on this tiny screen in front of me. Um, I wanted to start in kind of a funny place. I don't know if you'll find it funny, but it's going way back. But I was looking through your old stories and also just poking around as we do. And there's a great story in the Daily Times of Blount County, Tennessee. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> from when you won uh, the Livingston Award, which is award for uh, reporters who are younger than 35, which you won a couple of few years ago. And uh, it's really this like local kid made good story about you winning the Livingston Award. And, uh, <laughs> but it does go all the way back to when you were in first grade and it postulates in the lead that you knew from uh, when you were first grader that you wanted to be a writer. And... <laughs> I'm curious where this impulse came from originally.
3: Yes, it is true that uh, actually last, not this last Christmas because of COVID, but the Christmas before I went to visit my mom and we looked through a lot of old boxes that she had saved of my school stuff. And, you know, I went to public school in Tennessee and like we would write these little books and they would publish them in between cardstock um, and you would write in about the author, about yourself. And mine always said, Brooke Jarvis wants to be a writer or a drawer. (laughs) meaning artist, I guess, or a drawer, maybe a drawer in a bureau. Um, so yeah, I definitely was very interested in writing early on, but obviously my idea of what a writer was, was very different than, you know, I wrote these little short stories about, uh, kids flying to Saturn is the only one that I remember.
2: Mm, That's a future topic. That's a, that's a potentially a science story.
3: (laughs) I mean, if they did do it, it would be big news. (laughs) But yeah, one of the things I found in that box was I was on the newspaper staff at my high school, and there was a clipping of a column that I wrote. You know, it was like a little 350-word column, and it was about how I didn't have any ideas for the column that week. (laughs) And the headline was, writer tries to meet deadline, comma, fill space. (laughs) And I was like, wow, this is this is 15-year-old Brooke predicting her future.
2: Yeah. Uh, but you So Maryville, Maryville is that the town? Mm-hmm. It's like southeastern Tennessee. I was looking it up because it's not that far from where I grew up. And I spent a lot of time in southern Tennessee. I have relatives in southern Tennessee. Oh, where Tennessee. did you grow up? Um, I grew up in Atlanta. Oh, okay. Yeah.
3: Yeah, Maryville is, um, it was a much smaller, more rural town when I was a kid. Now it's a bit more of like a bedroom community for Knoxville, mm-hmm. uh, the grand metropolis of Knoxville. But it's a beautiful place. It's uh, right outside the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. It's absolutely lovely.
2: And then, according to this article, you, you went to the University of Richmond. And the point that I actually really wanted to get to is it said that during college, you came across a compilation of magazine articles. And that was a thing that inspired you to go more in the direction of magazine writing. And I'm curious if you remember what was this compilation and why did it speak to you?
3: I think that it was probably after college, actually, Mm. but I do remember I had an internship my first year out of college at a magazine on Bainbridge Island in Washington, which is how I ended up moving out here in the first place. And that internship, it was at a small magazine focused on the environment and social justice. And while I was there, I encountered this other kind of writing. One of them was a book that Ira Glass had edited Um, called The New Kings of Nonfiction. Mm -hmm. I think that was probably the book I was referring to. And I do actually remember reading my first article in the New York Times magazine while I was there, like the intern house, the internship came with a house that you could (laughs) live in a little moldy little cold house.
2: (laughs) Really? Was it paid? Or was that the only was it unpaid with housing?
3: It was unpaid with housing and health insurance. And you were only supposed to work part time. So you could get another job.
2: No, there's worse than that.
3: There's definitely worse. Yeah. But also the house had a a New York Times subscription, which is not something that I grew up with. And I remember reading an article in the Times magazine about squirrels in Britain. (laughs) It's a random thing, but it was about people in Britain who hate the gray squirrel because it's out competing the red squirrel. And it was a profile of this sort of absurd lord. I don't remember what his official title was, an earl or something. And his groundskeeper who went around trying to murder gray squirrels. But really, the article was about nationalism and xenophobia. And that's what I really loved about it, how it was able to tell this bigger story through this sort of goofy, smaller story.
2: And did you see at that point any route for you to get into that? I mean, it sparked something in you, but then what do you do?
3: Right. Yeah. Um, After this internship, I had a, a different job lined up that was totally different. It was in Hawaii. I worked in a national park where... Many of the residents are people who had leprosy. And so it's a very isolated, unusual place. And I was the person in charge of composting and recycling there. So I knew I was going on to that. I basically thought that I would just sort of live this life of a series of adventures where I did unusual things. And so, yeah, it was only like when I came to the end of that job that I started thinking, what other jobs can I get? Where is my life headed? And then it was the recession and it seemed like you couldn't get a job anywhere. But I got lucky and was offered a job as the web editor at the magazine where I had had that internship. So it was a while before I started thinking more directly about how I could do that kind of work. You know, I was at first just excited to have any kind of work. And then later, once I had been at the magazine job for a while, I decided that it was time to really try that.
2: And I I want to go back for a second to the time in Hawaii because you wrote this Atavis Magazine story about it when I was the editor there. And that's part of how I got to know your work a bit. And it's in the story, but what brought you there? What brought you to work with that community of people in Hawaii?
3: Honestly, it was an ad that I found on the internet when I was finishing college and trying to figure out what I should do. And you know, I went to school not far from D.C., and it seemed like everybody that I knew was taking some kind of consulting job and moving to D.C. to be a consultant, and that just sounded awful to me. At that same time, I applied to a job way out in in Alaska in the Aleutians that would have been even more remote than Kalopapa. But uh, yeah, I saw this ad, and it said, "Here's a place that you can't get to by car. You have to hike in down the world's tallest sea cliffs, and we get barge service once a year. And most people are not even allowed to visit for the privacy of the patients." And I just thought. I have to go to that place if I can. So I applied.
2: What What do you think, looking back now, what was driving that sense of adventure or wanting to go to sort of the most extreme, faraway place? Was there something behind that for you?
3: I don't know about, you know, the most extreme, faraway place, just, you know, interesting places. Yeah. You know, I, when I was growing up in Tennessee, it's not the case now. Like, I've been surprised to see how many people of my generation have... Have left and gone really all around the world. But when we were kids, nobody went all around the world from East Tennessee or even much farther than Atlanta. (laughs) So, yeah, I had done a volunteer thing when I was 16 where I got assigned to work in a national park in Hawaii. And I had a leader of that program there that I met who had had this really interesting life, you know, leading trail crews in Alaska and just doing all this stuff and it i thought oh the horizons are so much bigger than i realized
2: and when you were in hawaii so you're you're working with these people who have had this community there have been sent there because they have leprosy over a long period of time but they stopped sending people there and so now the community is getting smaller and smaller and do you think you learned anything there that helped you in your reporting later or became a part of your reporting later in terms of you know, interacting with that community?
3: Yeah. You know, when I first arrived there, I, I was originally planning on staying six months. I stayed a year, but I remember talking to one of the patients and she said, how long will you be here? And I said, six months, thinking that was a really long time. And she sounded so disappointed, like it wasn't even going to be worth getting to know me because I wasn't somebody who was really going to invest in the community. Mm. And, you know, we ended up actually being very good friends. But I would say what I learned from that place was, that you really had to try hard to show that you were committed to a place and the people there. But really, yeah, it was it was about about showing up and showing that you that you cared about people by spending a lot of time with them.
2: So you you eventually left there, you get a job at this magazine, and how did you go from being the web editor of it's called Yes Magazine, is that what it's called? Mm -hmm. to then starting to write features? Like, how did you make that leap?
3: Uh, Very purposefully, I guess. I saved up some money at that job. I was living in a very small rural place, and my rent was incredibly cheap. And so many of my friends didn't have traditional jobs of any kind. A lot of them were small farmers or machinists or carpenters. And... They sort of pieced together a living out of different projects, and it made it seem less radical to quit a steady, if <laughs> not well-paid job in nonprofit media to try to make a small business for yourself. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that was always the, the goal. I told myself I had a year to see if I was making real progress, and if I wasn't, I would have to go try to get some other kind of job.
2: What were the standards by which you would you would judge real progress?
3: Uh, you know, one was definitely like making some money to live on. But two was, did I feel like I was working my way towards doing the kind of work that I wanted to do? I knew I wouldn't be able to do it right away. But did I feel like I was progressing in that direction?
2: And did you feel like you already sort of had reporting skills or sort of knew how to do reporting? Or was it a matter of sort of getting the assignments and then kind of learning as you went?
3: Definitely learning as I went. Yes. Yes. And, you know, there was a period where I just pitched a lot of places, a lot of ideas, some of which when I look back now were terrible ideas and were things that I never would have been able to pull off. You know, a few of them I were incredibly wonky and I would say, oh, I'm going to make this so interesting, this wonky procedural rule change. Uh, thank God those did not get bought, <laughs> unsurprisingly. But yeah, it was, you know, sort of gradually pitching things that were more ambitious in terms of the reporting or the size and structure and relying on, you know, I I listened to this podcast a lot. I talked to a lot of other writers. I talked a lot to my editors and really saw it as kind of a self-directed apprenticeship program (laughs) to figure out how to do this.
2: And when you say talk to your editors, like, how did you even get editors from the position that you were in? What were your moves to try to get in front of people who could assign you the kind of story that you wanted to do?
3: I started out by pitching people that I knew a little bit from having worked at Yes. So I pitched Grist and I pitched the American Prospect and places that we sort of had professional relationships with. And in some cases, I'd met them at conferences, but not exclusively. I also sent out a lot of cold pitches. And I remember saying this a lot early on, that I thought that the world of freelancing was going to be a lot of every man out for themselves kind of situation. And it really wasn't like that. You know, I found that there was a community of people that was willing to offer you an editor contact or some advice or talk to you about what kind of word rate you should be asking for. Or, you know, I asked so many dumb questions. I remember asking somebody like, do they really pay your expenses? And I could see him looking at his watch like, what am I doing here with this newbie? But it's such an opaque industry that you have to ask these things.
2: Yeah. Well, especially these days, because I feel like that sometimes can be a shifting question, not not whether they'll pay your expenses, but sort of like how much they're in for, like that can vary right. pretty widely. So it is good to ask people what they're getting, what they're experiencing at different places. Was there, was there any point that you remember in that year, an assignment that you got a story you're working on where you said, okay, I feel like this is going to work. I am going to be able to do this.
3: I don't know if it was exactly in the first year, but pretty early on, I got a fellowship from Middlebury. There used to be this this environmental fellowship, and you know that allowed me to do something much more ambitious than I had done before, and ended up opening up a lot of doors that had not been opened before. So that was probably the turning point. The story that I that I did for that fellowship was about deep sea mining, mm-hmm. and I pitched it to the New York Times Magazine which felt very gutsy at the time and terrifying. And then I was absolutely shocked when they assigned it. And I had this grant money. I went to Papua New Guinea. You know, I worked like a very long time on that story. And then they killed it. And I was devastated. And I thought that my career was over and they would never work with me again. But it ended up being very much for the best. I resold the story to the California Sunday Magazine, which became you know, a really long and fruitful relationship until, alas, this last year.
2: Alas, alas.
3: Yeah, it's such a tragedy. That was a place that gave me a lot of trust and latitude, but also was a really great learning experience for me as I did different stories for them. And then after a couple of years passed, I sort of worked up the courage to pitch the times again but there there had been a moment where I thought that having been killed once meant they never wanted to work with you again which was not the case.
2: Yeah, I mean it's understandable that someone would think that. Well, first of all, do you remember why they why they killed it? What the reason was?
3: I would say that I just didn't yet know what I was doing. The piece that ran in the in California Sunday, the version of that was much shorter than the one that I originally wrote and really trimmed down. I think the the one that I filed with the Times was was very sprawling when I think back to it.
2: What was your interaction with the editor like? I feel like the biggest thing that I try to tell people who are starting out freelancers is if their story does get killed, that they should write the angry email that they want to write and put it in their drafts and then go to sleep and then delete it the next day. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Did you maintain a relationship with that same editor?
3: I did, yeah. So that editor was Sheila Glazer, who is now my editor at the New York Times magazine where I'm on contract. And we've, you know, worked closely together for five years, I think, since I started on contract, maybe four years. Anyway, yeah, I did, I did not write her an angry email. <laughs> and she's been a pleasure to work with. <laughs>
1: I can't even say it without laughing. Because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at RunningSuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course.
2: So when you're starting to get the opportunities to do some of these stories, you know, I have the benefit of being able to look back at a lot of your stories, and I have some, like, categorizations that I put them into, which I'll tell you about. But uh, oh, please. But before that, did you feel like you had a driving desire to tell a certain type of story, uh, that there was a genre, or, you know, you do a lot of science stories, and or were you kind of, like, tacking towards what you felt like editors wanted from you?
3: I definitely, you know, I don't think of myself as somebody who has a beat. And I'm always a little great, you know, interested when I hear from people that they think I have a type of story or, oh, this is a Brooke story. Because I'm like, please tell me what a Brooke story is. It's hard to recognize (laughs) from inside my head. But usually what makes a story work for me is it's complicated. It's nuanced. I really like things where I go into it and I don't know what my opinion of it is yet. And I can, you know, if there are two sides, I can identify with the two sides or, you know, where I, where I think that the story is bigger than itself. You know, I, there needs to be the story story with the plot and the characters and the narrative. But for me to to want to do it, there usually has to be these sort of bigger questions embedded in it. And that's usually what really pulls me into a piece in my lists of possible story ideas. Some of them are stories, but a lot of them are topics or questions that are in search of a story.
2: Well, I wanna, I wanna maybe talk about some specific stories as a way to kind of understand how these things come about and how you get into them. So I said I had some categorizations of your stories. One of them is I feel like you do a type of story a lot that is sort of addresses questions about who gets counted, whose story gets to be told. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the story Unclaimed, the California Sunday story, um, because Mm. I think it has some elements of that. And maybe you could just describe a little bit about what that story is about.
3: That's a story about a man who was presumed to be a migrant from Mexico because of some things found in his pockets, who was injured in a car crash and ended up in a not exactly a coma in a persistent vegetative state. And he was unidentified. Nobody knew who he was and he wasn't able to tell anybody who he was. And so in a way, the story was about him. But what drew me to it was wanting to tell a story about all of the people who surrounded him, like the people who heard about his story and had this moment of hope because they had lost somebody who had tried to migrate to the U.S., especially crossing the desert and never had any news of what happened to them and there are just an astounding number of people in this situation who have to live with that uncertainty and for a lot of them you know even though this is not an outcome you would hope for like he's horribly injured and unable to communicate it still would have been you know it was an outcome that they dreamed of because it would give them answers and they they would know what had happened to their loved one and so i really saw it as i borrowed this analogy actually from Carson McCullers, the novelist. Hmm. One of my favorite books is a book of hers called The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. And there's a central character who is a deaf mute that all of these other characters project all of their needs and hopes and fantasies onto and think that he's the only person who understands them. And when you get his perspective, he kind of thinks they're all nuts. But she described it as being like spokes on a wheel. And that character was the hub of the wheel. And I thought of him that way, as the spoke that united all of these separate stories that would be hard to tell in a different way.
2: That's what I think makes it such a a story that really sticks with you, is a lot of the story is about people who think that they, in particular one person who believes that she might be his sister, who then eventually discover that she's not. And usually that wouldn't be a story. You know, that, that would be the point at which you would say, well, I didn't get the story because I didn't find the person who turned out to be, you know, their relative. But that becomes the heart of the story is like the person who is searching. Did you know going into it that that's the story that you wanted to do? Or was it originally sort of maybe I can help figure out who actually is related to this person somehow?
3: No, you know, I mean, they did eventually solve the mystery. Mm -hmm. I didn't have anything to do with it. It really was a way to tell a broader story that in a way was not even about this particular person, but was about this really common, horrible experience of what these families go through having to live with a missing person.
2: And then there was also this character, I think character, you know, person, who I think her name was Paula, who was a person who, it just astounded me. Like she found out that this man was in the hospital, didn't know him, didn't know anything about him, and just started visiting him all the time and became like his only friend in the world, so to speak. And then when the actual mystery gets solved, there's this incredibly sad moment when she's really no longer allowed to visit him because it's he has real relatives now. And so she's not a relative. So, you know, he has to keep his privacy. And how difficult was it to get her to kind of open up in the way that she did? And how did you go about that?
3: Really, you know, so often I find that it's not that hard to get people to open up when they really care deeply about something, then just showing an interest and caring and being an attentive listener, you know, that's really all you need.
2: Returning to your experience in Hawaii for a second, you know, it occurred to me, you know, that maybe there was a relationship there, that there was some element of you learning whose story gets to be told and why do people get forgotten and having a desire to kind of like, bring those people's stories in front of more people's eyes. I don't really have a question there, except to say that that was my running theory. So I wanted to uh, put it by you.
3: No, I think it is a good theory. It works actually for a lot of things that I've done. I read the news a lot, but you always think about what's missing in the news Not just what stories aren't being told, but what connective thread between stories is not there. Mm -hmm. Like, as an example, I did a story about insect decline a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And I sort of saw that the same way, where, you know, if you read a lot of environmental news, you see all of these sort of terrifying studies come across your desk day in and day out. And the way that we experience those as news consumers is that we glance at them and we say, oh shit, and then we make breakfast. And what I wanted to do with that story was, you know, my original idea was just like, we need to have a long immersive piece that makes people sit with those studies and and this reality and really feel what it means. You know, like emotionally, I really wanted people to emotionally feel these dry studies about insect numbers. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, speaking of, of wanting to find... The bigger story within the littler story. When I first started talking to scientists about that, there was one who said to me, you know, that most scientists, entomologists had missed this story because it just wasn't what they were looking for. They weren't tracking something as boring as abundance. And so it was these really dedicated, quote unquote, amateur scientists, they would dispute that characterization <laughs> of them. Yeah who did notice it. And he said something like they were the ones who were paying attention to the natural world for the rest of us. And that was when I was like, Oh, I'm definitely doing this story because it had this bigger question or bigger theme of how bad we are at seeing what's happening in the world around us and what it takes to actually see and perceive these invisible trends that are really meaningful, but that we so often don't even look at.
2: That reminds me of a different story actually, which is the story you did about the Crazy Horse Monument. I knew about the Crazy Horse Monument. You know, the thing you kind of know about is it's been in progress for 70 years or however long, and uh, it's gonna take decades more to finish. But there's sort of like, if you actually take one step further and peek behind it, which is what you did in the story, the question becomes who really wants this? Like who benefits from it? And how did it really come about? And where does your ability to perceive that there's a story behind the story come from? Like, what, what work goes into figuring out that that idea is viable?
3: Well, so in that case, actually, that was an idea that was brought to me by The New Yorker.
2: Oh, well, it's good to have an editor who... Uh, who. Uh...
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's good to have... Yeah, they, they had been looking for somebody to do something about it. And specifically about the people within the Lakota community who are opposed to it. And why? And what drew me to it was, you know, what what is the world's largest statue, but a symbol? It's trying to be a symbol of something, but it's turning out to be a symbol of something very different than what its organizers say that it's about. The fact that it's happening in the Black Hills, which are unceded land. The government has acknowledged that that's not just unceded, but directly stolen land. And I guess it's sort of similar to the stories we've been talking about, where there's a big, complicated world and lots of complicated questions and this awful historical backstory that is very present in everything that's happening currently. And when you can find one place, in this case, a place, the statue, in other cases, you know, a person through which you can tell that bigger story or explore that landscape. It allows you a, a way in. You need like a touch point through which to enter that world.
2: So the other category of story that I have developed in my uh, in my head is sort of these large systems and forces and the people who find themselves on the other end of these forces. And it feels like during uh, the COVID like, pandemic year, Uh, You addressed almost like three different aspects of the pandemic in three really big stories. And how did you go about that? Because it was such a difficult time for anyone to like jump in and try to figure out what they were going to write about. And so when the pandemic hit, did you immediately kind of identify some topics that you felt like you could cover? how, how How did these stories come about?
3: When the pandemic hit, you know, I had I had a totally different plan for how that year was gonna go that involved a lot of travel. Yeah. And very quickly realized that none of it was gonna happen. And like everybody else, I couldn't read about anything but the pandemic in the early time. I was so focused on it that it was like, well, I should definitely be writing about it and should find stories within it. And the first one I did, Wired, came to me and asked me to do a story about vaccine development. Mm -hmm. The stage one clinical trials for the Moderna vaccine took place in Seattle. And so I was able to do a very, very small amount of in-person reporting. Like, you know, during the period where all of the roads were empty, I drove to the home of the guy who was the second person in the world to get the Moderna shot. And we sat out in his backyard. Like that was the most in-person reporting that I did for the first three months of the pandemic.
2: That's wild, though. And it was like, he got it in March of 2020, right? hmm That's insane.
3: Yeah, amazingly fast. You know, they really designed that thing in a weekend. But the part of the story was about how you have all of this, you know, years of underlying science to get you to the point where you can develop a vaccine that quickly.
2: Right. And then I feel like this story about picking cherries came next. Yes. Was that anything you'd been tracking before or you, you just found it after the pandemic hit?
3: I was talking to editors at the Times and they wanted to do something about pandemic impacts on the food system. Mm -hmm. You know, the conversation was happening around the time when there was so much news about milk having to be poured out and potatoes spoiling because basically it revealed all of these inflexible systems in the way that food works. Because if restaurants aren't open, then there was no flexibility in the system to allow that food to get to people in a different way. And I think actually that an editor there first brought up the idea of cherries. I had already done a fair amount of reporting in eastern Washington in the agricultural worlds out here, most of which are fruit related, but not all of them. And so I knew from having interviewed a lot of farm workers that cherry season is this really intense time of year. Mm -hmm. You know, people come from all over back in the 80s and 90s, they would often just camp by the riverside because there was nowhere for them to stay. It would be like huge families come because it just needs so many workers in order to happen. And so that seemed like an interesting tension to explore. Like The population of agricultural workers in the US is diminishing for a lot of different reasons. And this was a time when we were talking about essential workers and what that means and sort of realizing that a lot of the jobs that we value the least and the people that we value the least and make put up with the most crap are the ones that we had to rely on to get through this.
2: Yeah. And walk me through a little bit. How do you get from conceptualizing that to finding the people who are going to be the subjects of the story?
3: Yeah, I always look for people who can sort of open the door to a world. Once you get through the door, the there's so many worlds that turn out to be really huge like the world of cherry farmers or and in this case I had done a story the year before or 2 years before about the apple industry mm-hmm. and
2: love that story some
3: of those industry groups are for tree fruit in general and so a lot of the people who knew about apples also knew about cherries <laughs> and could tell me who to start talking to and i wanted to make sure to come at the story from a lot of different perspectives so you know i found doors that opened to growers and to farm workers and sort of to consumers.
2: And how long is that process to kind of get to the point where you feel like you had enough reporting?
3: In that case, I, you know, we we wanted to get the piece out while it was still summer and while people were still eating cherries. (laughs) (laughs) If that makes sense, like it's a way in which they really relate to the story. Here's this Commodity that I am encountering in my daily life, and now I'm reading about the huge and complicated forces that get it to my table. So I did a lot of phone calls and then I went to Eastern Washington for a week and sort of filled my days going to interview people outside their houses, going to fields, just trying to get when you're starting out a new story, it sort of feels like you you're exploring a new landscape and Later, you're going to come back with the reader and you're going to walk them around on a path that you have created through the landscape. And you'll be like, look at this view. Look at this tree. <laughs> but first, you have to wander all around it to see you know, what you're going to show them and in what order. And you're just you know, me- meeting people, spending a few hours with them, and, and then figuring out who's going to be somebody that you come back to. Um, and there was a family of farm workers in that story that I came back to. You know, they were really open to telling their story. They were in the process of uh, their landlady was trying to evict them. You know, you you just look for the people who, through whose story you can cover the most interesting territory.
2: And do the people, uh, do they stick with you in terms of, you know, it sounds like the Apple story that you wrote for California Sunday, to a certain extent, you could build on that for this one. But do you find that's often true where the stories kind of build into each other or they feel like islands that you sort of float away from afterwards?
3: For me, they often feel a little like islands or like mountaintops and you're (laughs) going to go explore a different one.
2: I'm sure you could come up with a better, better analogy than my, than my islands.
3: (laughs) Um, Yeah. I'm not somebody who goes back to the same territory very often Mostly because often when I've finished a story, I feel like I've said what I had to say about it. And if I were to write about it again, I would have to have something new to say. And so in this case, like the cherry story and the apple story, they're both about fruit in Eastern Washington, but they seem really different to me because one is about workers and supply chains and the production. And the apple story was much more about consumption and marketing and how agricultural products are forced into like, you know, these natural products are forced into mechanized systems and how they're sold to us as consumers.
2: So you're not sitting there saying tree fruit, I will, I'm ready for a new tree fruit story right now.
3: I actually am working on a story that's adjacent <laughs> to tree fruit. <laughs> wait a
2: minute, wait a minute. So you are, you're on the tree fruit beat.
3: I guess I am. And in in that case, it's, you know, again, it's not about tree fruit, it's about something else. But knowing people in the tree fruit world allowed me to find it
2: so the third story of the covid stories that I want to talk about was the was the smell story which is from earlier this year the most astounding part of which is the revelation part way through that you do not have a sense of smell
3: <laughs> the reveal
2: <laughs> I mean that's a spoiler people should read the story but um that's astounding and I, I feel like there was a Had you written about that before or had you thought about writing about that before?
3: I had thought about writing it before and I had talked to Sheila, my editor, about it and you know, years ago. And she had said, Oh, that's potentially interesting, but there would have to be a story there. You know, how how would we enter it? Is there new science? Is there and I didn't have an answer to that question for a long time. So I've, you know, sort of kept an eye on the science of smell. Not not a nose, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) It's terrible. Uh, because I think it's so fascinating. Like as somebody who can't smell, what I really learned from that is how much everybody else talks about smell all of the time. And meanwhile, they all say it's the the sense that they would most happily give up. It doesn't really <laughs> matter to them who cares about smell. And then me watching them, I'm like, you, you care about smell a lot. And so I had wanted to do something about smell for a while. And then it turned out to be this really, indicative symptom of covid yeah. and suddenly the whole world is also very interested in smell
2: and you you were like lacking the thing that told a lot of people that they potentially had covid did that concern you at all when you found out that it was uh, <laughs> one of the ways that you know people that was what they used to know that they had it
3: right you know it's just always been the case that there are certain things i have to work around because i can't smell uh, I did, you know, I made sure that my partner's smell was still working because <laughs> if he was sick, then I would be sick.
2: <laughs> well, there's one last uh, sort of category of story that I want to talk about, which is it's sort of things we're losing in the world. And the, I, the insects one actually fits into that one, the, the the insect apocalypse story, but also an older story that I love, not that much older, but for years, which was the hunt for the Tasmanian uh, tiger. I guess the smell story is also things that we're losing in some, <laughs> in some sense. Um, but I want to know how that story came about. Did that come from an editor? Did that come from you?
3: That one came from me.
2: And w- how did you stumble upon that?
3: You know, every few years, somebody thinks that they've seen a Tasmanian tiger. And every few years, the media is incredibly credulous about it. <laughs> and there's sort of a news cycle where people are like, oh, of course this animal is out here and now it's been proven. And then you look at the video and it's extremely inconclusive and often just, you know, it's really, really not a tiger.
2: <laughs> There's a great scene in that, sir. i just interrupt for a second, where a guy is explaining to you in great detail what he's seeing in the video. And you're, you, you say something like, I'm just not, all I see is a blurry image. And he's like, it's got stripes and it's got this. And don't you see this?
3: Yeah, uh, someone told me that seeing a Tasmanian tiger in a camera trap is a lot like seeing the Virgin Mary in a piece of toast. <laughs> and, and it is. And so that's, you know, I, there was a a round of those news stories because a, a team of tiger hunters had found what they said were conclusive photos. And what drew me to that was clearly there's this extreme desire not just on the part of the tiger hunters, but on the part of the general public to believe, you know, as unlikely as it is that this large predator is able to survive in the wild, undetected. And that was the question that brought me to that story is why? Why do people want so badly to believe that?
2: And did you feel like you you got to the answer you were looking for?
3: You know, it wasn't the same for everybody, but... It really felt a lot of, you know, like people wanted, in some cases, a do-over, you know, that it came from a place of guilt of what we've done to the natural world. And if we could be wrong about having driven the species to extinction, and the, you know, the story of the Tasmanian tiger is different from a lot of extinction stories, because most of the time we drive things to extinction just by bumbling around and turning everything into human worlds and not thinking about other creatures that live here. But in the case of the Tasmanian tiger, like people decided we're going to drive these animals out. We're done with them. We're going to kill them all.
0: Mm-hmm. And they
3: did very successfully. And so then later you have to grapple emotionally with what that means. And it became sort of a, a way to deny how bad things are you know, there's some progress in trying to clone a new Tasmanian tiger from Mm -hmm. specimens that were preserved. And some people put that as that's the ultimate denial, you know, denying even the finality of extinction. Like, it's okay, we can make these, not even mistakes, we can do these terrible things. And then we can come back from them. And we won't really be at fault.
2: Do you tend to do a story like that? Because you find that those people are very different from you and you want to explain how they are or that there's something in their obsession that you relate to and feels like you have it too?
3: I think that obsession is inherently interesting. We want to know why why somebody would care so much about something that it could direct their whole life. And in the case of a lot of these tiger searchers, you know, they spend thousands of dollars, their wives leave them, it really does become their whole life. And the thing that's coming to mind right now is that that line about how, I don't even remember who wrote this, wanted to want something as badly as the moth wanted to extinguish itself on a flame, like the way a moth is drawn to a candle.
0: <laughs>
3: yeah, it's when people care about something a lot, what can be more interesting than that to understand what drives those powerful emotions.
2: And do you have that with anything? Do you feel like you have that level of obsession with anything in your life?
3: I wouldn't say so. You know, that's part of why I do this work is that I am able to get temporarily obsessed (laughs) with a lot of different things and then move on to the next thing that I'm temporarily obsessed with. So yeah, I have it for a while, but then there's always a new question that I want to follow.
2: And do you have any sort of larger trajectory in mind when you're when you're doing it? Like, I want to start moving in this direction, or I'm looking for, you know, the idea that will turn into a book, or is it more just about continuing to fill your plate and finding different ways to fill your plate and things that interest you?
3: I mean, I, I do have some, like, I am working on a book project uh, that was, it was pushed back by the pandemic. That's what my year of travel in 2020 ah. was going to be. So it's been, it's been delayed. But yeah, I I continue to be I have this feeling so often of really wishing that I had time to do more stories than I than I do. I have I have FOMO all the time about topics that I just don't have time to get into that I think could be done in a really interesting way. So yeah, I'm I'm not bored yet.
2: Can you talk about the book at all? Is it out of a story or something completely different?
3: It's so it grew out of the insect story. hmm And is about biodiversity and loss and insects
2: well I won't I won't go too deep about it because uh, you will have to come back after you finish it and then we'll actually talk about it
3: yeah absolutely
2: all right well thank you very much for doing this and uh, it was really lovely to talk to you
3: likewise yeah thank you so much for having me
2: that's it for this week's long-form podcast thank you to brooke jarvis for coming on the show this week i am your co-host evan ratliff my fellow co-hosts are max linsky and aaron lammer our editor is janelle Piper. our intern is susan peterson and our sponsor as always is mailchimp thank you so much for listening and we will see you next week